going to begin today by reading just a passage that we hope to arrive at before the end of our message today, and it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, we'll begin there, "...lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure." For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Last week, we talked about the issue of suffering in the world, why suffering exists, what should be our mentality as we face afflictions in this world. And we intended to continue that this week, but Yesterday, or last Sunday rather, in between the morning service and the memorial service that we had for Brother Carl Yeager, we had the privilege of being approached by two different young people and their parents who had expressed a desire to join the church and to be baptized. And so, as you know, we have the privilege this afternoon of not one, not two, but, Lord willing, three baptisms. And all God's people said, Amen. Praise God for that. What we want to do today is to briefly review on what we discussed last week and eventually arrive here at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but to tie in this concept of following Christ and what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to serve Him, what it means to be a disciple, coming to the conclusion of the message with the fact that sometimes in this world Christians suffer, but as a follower of Christ, as I suffer as a Christian, those are the moments in my personal life when I experience the greatest strength, the greatest clarity, the greatest understanding. I feel Christ more when I struggle as a follower of Him and These two concepts, though they might seem different to us, being a follower of Christ and experiencing Him in suffering are not different concepts at all, but they are inseparably connected in the Word of God. Because we know that all who live for Christ shall suffer persecution and tribulation in this world. And as we suffer, we experience His strength. And as we experience His strength, we grow in the grace of God and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In review, all suffering in this world comes from the sin of Adam. We live in a fallen world. It's a broken world. Because of that, things happen that ought not be. Because we live in a broken world, our bodies get older and they begin to wear out. We experience sicknesses and plagues and pains and aches because we are sinners 
in a broken world, this broken world being a place of suffering. But there are many different individual causes of suffering, as we talked about last week. Sometimes we suffer divine chastening when God disciplines his children because they have done something that displeases him. Sometimes, as we are faithful to Christ, we suffer persecution and affliction, something that we'll talk about at the close of our message today. When the enemy marks you as a target and the enemy does what he can to destroy you and to afflict you, to drive you away from Christ... Sometimes the enemy tortures you simply because he knows that he has been defeated. And in those moments, I find it helpful to remind that wicked one that his days are numbered. Fire is his future. Hell will be his home. And there is no escaping that. He will face the full wrath of God for what he has done to God's people in this world. Sometimes we suffer divine judgment as a nation. We've been studying the minor prophets on Wednesday night, and you know that if there's one common theme of the minor prophets, it's God judging nations. This past week, we studied the book of Amos and how the Lord was going to judge Ammon, and the Lord was going to judge Moab, and the Lord was going to judge Edom, and the Lord was going to judge Judah, the Lord was going to judge Samaria, the Lord was going to judge Israel. One common theme of that book is God judging the nations of the world. God never relinquished his authority to judge this world. He judges nations. He judges cities. He judges cultures. Many times those judgments look like the peril of the sword. If you want an interesting word study, I would encourage you to do this from the Old Testament. Simply look up the word sword and read how many times the word sword is mentioned with relation to divine judgment. Now, does God show up with a sword and hit you with a sword as a nation when he judges you? No. He sends another nation against you. And you can read of Jerusalem being overthrown by Babylon. They were the sword against them, and they enacted God's judgment against Israel. He unleashes people that would destroy you. And to remind you, he has nothing to do with the sin that might take place in those moments, but God certainly sends other nations as a form of judgment upon peoples in this world because it's his world. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And lastly, as we discussed last week, sometimes we suffer for the glory of God, like Lazarus. The Lord tarries four days so the man passes away just so he can raise him from the dead, just so you would understand that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. And what a glorious truth that is to know. It frames our understanding of the last day, that he will raise all the dead. It frames our understanding of the new birth, because we are raised from death and sin to life in Christ only through the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of that, we know that Regardless of whether we understand why some of this affliction happens in the world, we don't always know. In fact, most of the time we don't know the cause of it. Our response is to be humility. We want to continue and speak on that subject today of suffering, but what we want to do is tie in being a follower of Christ because we have brand new commitments to Him. People who are saying to the world, 
I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a disciple. I want to show this world that I will follow him no matter the cost. And all the things that this involves and how as Christians we even suffer the afflictions of the enemy because of our decision to devote our lives to him. And please understand, we'll talk today about what you don't have a decision in, which is the new birth. But you have a decision each and every day as to whether you're going to follow Jesus that day or not. As we look at what it means to follow Jesus, we're here today, you are here today, because you're followers of Christ. A small group of people in a room in the middle of what used to be a cow pasture in North Alabama, beside a school, beside a river, the Flint River, you've come today to sing praise to Him, to pray to Him, to hear His Word taught to you, to worship Him, to adore Him. You came today to obey Him because He commands you to come and to worship Him. You're here today because you're a follower of Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Why are you a follower of Christ when there are people in this world who care nothing for the Lord Jesus? We endeavor to obey Him and to honor Him. Why do we endeavor to obey Him and honor Him? How did this come to be? It's very definitive from Scripture. It's very clear. The Bible asserts this over and over and over again, that the natural man does not seek the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is what each and every one of us are by nature. Natural men. Now you, if you are born of God, are no longer natural men, but you are spiritual men. The Spirit of Christ lives within you. Because ye are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, what? Abba, Father. Christ calls out to His Father, within you, you are born of the Spirit of God. Before you are born of the Spirit of God, you are a natural man. Now, there are people in this world who were born again at such a young age, like John the Baptist, that they never know a time in their mind when they did not call out from the heart to Christ, Abba, Father. But there are many people in this world like Saul of Tarsus, who spend a portion of their life in disobedience and outright rebellion, rejection of Him, hating God and hating one another. And yet God's grace comes to them and changes them, and they're no longer natural men, but they're spiritual men. John the Baptist was a man who was born again in his mother's womb. And so by the time he learned language, you think about that, before he learned the word father in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek or Latin or any other language that was spoken in that day, John the Baptist's heart cried out, Abba, to God. He was born again even before he left his mother's womb. But even John the Baptist, 
for a period of time as unborn John the Baptist was a natural man. There's only one individual in the history of humanity who has been born into the world without sin, and that was the man Christ Jesus. You say, what about Adam? He wasn't born. Adam wasn't born. What was his birthday? He didn't have one. God formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. His wife Eve was taken from him as a rib, and God did form out of her that rib, and every other human being has been born because Adam transgressed the law of God. Every human was born in sin, with the one exception of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was the son not only of man, he was the son of God. And so he had no sin. But every single one of us is shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin. And as natural men, before God comes into our heart, we do not believe, we do not rejoice in the gospel, we do not love the fellowship of the church, we do not seek him, we do not desire to honor him. Romans 13, excuse me, Romans 3 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, they are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no, not one, their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes." You say, perhaps that's hyperbole. That's not hyperbole. That is literally you and me before Christ came into our lives. Now, what does that have to do with our message today? Well, before we talk about being a follower of Christ, you need to understand why you can follow Christ, why you desire Him. By nature, as natural men, we do not seek after God. We do not understand God. We do not fear God. The way of peace we have not known. Romans chapter 3. One of the psalms or hymns that we sang today, it's a hymn in our hymnal that's derived from Psalm 42. And it reads as follows, Psalm 42. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. As a heart... As an animal desires the water from a stream, so does my soul desire you, God. Now, can you say that this morning? My heart desires Christ. I yearn for God. The water could be overflowing in the brook, and I'm going to do whatever I've got to do to cross it, whatever the cost you know, the old expression, come hell or high water, I'm going to be there following Christ. Why is it that you feel that way when naturally in this world you have no desire for Christ because you are Adam multiplied? The psalmist continues, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night. While they continually say unto me, where is thy God? Now you have the 
Great contrast between the two types of people that we're talking about this morning here in Psalm 42. One person is saying, my heart yearns for God the way an animal yearns for a drink of water in the midst of the wilderness. And the other men in this world say, where is your God? The scoffer, the rejecter, the mocker, the type that says in his heart that... The service of God is folly or foolishness. The type that doesn't believe he has any sin of his own. The type that doesn't believe that Christ is the Son of God. The type that rejects the fact that we live in a creation made by a creator. The natural man says unto the spiritual man, where is thy God? The psalmist says, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude, I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept holy day. I've devoted my life to serving you, Lord. I've gone to your house. And when I remember these things, what does the psalmist say? I pour out my soul in me. I love that expression and you find expressions such as that in the Psalms. I've got a a glass of water here before me and I could pour that out on the ground If I were to do that, you would have a vessel that's before you that is empty. And all the ingredients of that, all the contents, rather, of that would be on the ground. I empty my vessel. I empty my complaint, my grief. Remember, my tears have been my meat. That's poetic for saying I have wept, I have cried, I have suffered, I've been afflicted in this world. And above all of that, I've been mocked by the scoffer. And I remembered these things and I pour out my soul in me. In other Psalms, we read of pouring out our complaint to him, my concerns, my struggles. And we do that as we come to him and pray. I went with them to the house of God. Now, in that day, the house of God was the temple in Jerusalem. Today, the house of God is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How important it is to be in the house of God on the holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And then he begins to... Call out to God, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites and from the hill Mizar. These are places. And he's basically saying, From this place to this place, wherever I go, I remember you. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. Thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness. In the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of of my life. I will say unto God my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's expressing this burden and this struggle of his enemies oppressing him, laughing at him. Where is your God? You claim that there's a God. You claim to follow him. You go to the house of God on the holy day. And so the psalmist begs God, Lord, why is it so in the world? Again, you have this concept of 
following him faithfully and at the same time suffering for the fact that you follow him. As with the sword in my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, where is thy God? He asks, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Sometimes you ask yourself that question, why are you depressed? Why are you struggling? You know, you know that God reigns. You know that Christ has taken away your sin. You know that he loves you. You know that in his hands are the nail prints and his feet are the nail prints. There's a hole in his side from the spear which pierced him. You know that there was a crown of thorns dug into his brow. You know that he was crucified for you. You know that he was placed in the ground. You know that he rose again on the third day. And so why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? You find the solution to that in just a few words at the conclusion of that psalm. Hope thou in God. The last point that we're going to make today involves that word hope. As followers of Christ, we are saved by hope. Now you might be thinking, I thought I was saved by Christ. You were saved by Christ on the cross of Calvary. 2,000 years ago, when he took your sin upon himself and he died for you as though he had committed your sins, though he himself were innocent. As the sin bearer, the Father had laid on him the iniquity of us all. You say, I thought we were saved when the Holy Spirit took up residence within our heart. We absolutely were. But there is a way that in our afflictions as followers of Christ, as we think on the resurrection from the dead and the work of our Savior on our behalf, we are saved by hope. The hope that we have in Christ every single day saves us. It doesn't save us from hell. It doesn't save us from the penalty of sin. It saves us from despair. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you are so overcome with despair and so overcome with grief that you don't even know how you're going to make it through that next day? And it's amazing, you're exhausted in the day and in the night you lay awake looking at the ceiling. You worry, you rehash everything that you're concerned with. You relive it, you torture yourself. Your soul is cast down within you and you pour out your grief in your mind. Psalmist says, hope thou in God, hope in him, remember what he's done for you, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. He encourages himself in two ways. Number one, have hope, the earnest expectation that everything's going to be okay. And two, Get to his house and praise him. Now let me just say, if you're going through a bad Tuesday, sometimes Tuesdays are bad. Sometimes Thursdays are bad. 
Sometimes Fridays are bad. We know that this is Holy Day and we have come to God's house. We have come into His house. We remember what He's done for us. We hope in Him and we praise Him. But if you're having a terrible Tuesday and you say, Brother Ben, I want to go to the house of God and praise God. I'll meet you here if I'm not already here. And we'll sit and we'll pray and you can weep and I'll weep with you. And we will hope in Him and we will praise Him. I want you to do the very best that you can to run to Him when you experience things such as this in the world. I'm telling you, we live in a day today when, Chris, when America never or does no longer anymore pay the lip service they paid to the gospel that they did in your parents' generation. And every single day that goes by, more and more people in this country and in this world scoff and mock at you for the simple fact that you believe in Christ and dare to follow him as a disciple. It was an easy thing for a person to say, yeah, I'm a Christian in 1900. It was an easy thing to say that you're a Christian in 1800. But this world is increasingly hostile to you, and it is increasingly hostile to God. And when those struggles begin to weigh on your mind, and you begin to experience distress as they say, where is thy God? The solution is to come into the house of God, to hope in God, to praise God, to remind yourself, remember soul, remember mind what God has done for you throughout your life. Look at all of his tender mercies to seek him and serve him. I intended to read one verse from Psalm 42. Natural men don't seek Christ. Clearly, some people seek Him, and they seek Him deeply. How did we come, how did we go from being one who does not fear Him, does not understand Him, does not seek Him, to being one whose heart pants for him the way a heart pants for water brooks, whose soul thirsts for him. The only way that a person can go from being a Christ-hating rejecter of God to a lover of Christ and a pursuer of God is grace. And so as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, and you hath he quickened us who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There was a time in my life and in your life when you and I were dead. You say, I've never been dead. Now, you were not, and then you were, and as long as you were, you were not dead. There's coming a time in every one of our lives when we will be dead in a physical sense. We know what death is. Last week we had a memorial service for a dear brother of this church. Why did we have a memorial service? Because he's no longer with us because he passed away. 
The Bible uses the word that we use to describe what happens when a person physically dies to describe your condition before Christ. You were dead. You had no care for Christ, no interest in Christ, no conviction of sin. If you did think that there was some sort of a creator, you certainly didn't love him and worship him. You probably resented him and did everything that you could to talk yourself out of the reality of his existence. Why? Because you were dead. And we all had our conversation, our lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh. If you love Jesus then, and if you follow him, if you seek him, if you pursue him, you do so because he has brought you to life. Lazarus was a man that was suffered by God to experience a terrible illness. As they come to Jesus and say, Lazarus, your friend is sick, Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death, but that you would understand the power of God to raise the dead. Jesus tells him he sleeps. This is four days. He sleeps. They say, Lord, if he's asleep, he does well. If you're sick, what is it that you want to do more than anything else? You want to go to sleep. But Jesus says plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, by the way, death for the child of God is sleep. You lay down and you will rise again. If you pass away and you are deceased, what we call dead, the Bible calls you sleep because you're going to be raised again. But when you are raised again, you won't be raised in the same state that you are now. You won't come forth from the tomb with a body that is susceptible to corruption. You won't come forth from the grave with a sin nature. You won't be stricken with viruses or illnesses. Or how about this one? Allergies. The trees are trying to kill me. Maybe they don't bother you. I don't know. Somebody watched our live stream last week. They said, you know, everybody laughed. It was really funny. You got a bunch of good laughs. I said, we had a bunch of people at church who weren't from Flint River. Anyway... The trees are trying to kill me. You won't be raised in a body that has allergies or aches and pains in that day. At death you sleep. Your soul is conscious with Christ, but your body sleeps. And he will raise it again incorruptible. Jesus says he sleeps because he was dead. He goes to him and he raises him from the dead. We have that example to teach us that only Christ has the power to raise the dead and he raises each and every one of his children from death and sin to life in Christ. Jesus asks his disciples in Matthew 16, whom say ye that I the son of man am? Peter's always the first to answer. He was a rather bombastious man. Sometimes this worked for the good. Sometimes this did not work so great. 
But in this case, Peter is spot on. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father in heaven. Peter, you know who Christ is because God the Father has revealed him to you. By his grace, through the Holy Spirit, when you were raised from death and sin to life in Christ. You are no longer dead. You are alive. God has revealed his son to you, Peter. You might wonder which comes first, the chicken or the egg. The regeneration, the Holy Spirit, the new birth, enables us to see. Seeing doesn't enable the new birth. No more than showing a corpse causes them to discern anything. They can't see because they're dead. It's amazing how spiritual-minded people recount their story of how they came to follow Jesus. Even people who don't understand God's sovereignty in the new birth. God is sovereign in the new birth. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou heareth the sound thereof, canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The new birth happens just like the blowing of the wind. None of us have power over it or control over it. It's exclusively by the command of God. There are people who don't know that fact, who begin to recount their experience to you, and what they don't know in their mind, they know in their heart. A faithful sister recently at an event that I was at recounted to some of the people that were there her story. And she said there was a time in her life when she didn't care a thing in the world about Christ or the church or the gospel. And then all of a sudden... She began to feel guilt over her sins and see the beauty of Christ and feel compelled to Him. And then she acts on that and follows Him. Now, most people look at the acting on that and following Him as the moment when a person is born again. But the new birth is what caused her to yearn for Him and mourn her sins. Because before that, she was dead. It's amazing. Ask people their story. Oh, they'll tell you, I I didn't care a thing in the world about God. And then all of a sudden, He shows Himself to me. And I just cry out to Him. That's not some sort of prevenient grace, some pre-grace that you're given so you make the right decision. That is God raising the dead from death in sin to life in Christ. Peter, if you see and you believe that I'm the Son of God... It's because God has revealed me unto you. You ask people their story, and especially deeply spiritual people will tell you that God worked on their heart before any sort of intellectual choice or decision that they made. They're simply compelled to Christ. The words of Paul Harvey, now you know the rest of the story. We spend our lives trying to explain to people the rest of the story. Why are you compelled to Christ? So what do we do if I'm compelled to Him? If I love Him? If I experience guilt over my sins? If I believe in Him? If I see that 
What he has taught in his word is true. My heart burns for him as the two on the road to Emmaus. Christ commissions his ministry in Matthew 28 to go and to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. People that have been made to see Christ, to whom Christ has been revealed, are to be discipled. When Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach, the word teach here translates from the same root that the word is, the root of that word is the same word that translates disciple every single time the word disciple occurs in the ministry of Jesus. You see, before they were called Christians or church members, they were called disciples. Disciples are students, pupils, learners. We are to go and to make disciples. Now, can I go and make a child of God? No, no more than anyone can make someone a son of someone else. But I can teach them and I can disciple them. Notice this, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them after their disciple there to be baptized baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We are to disciple them, baptize them, and teach them to observe all things that Christ has commanded us. And by the way, that's not a six-week course. That's not a one-semester course. That's not a two-year, four-year, or master's degree You never graduate from the school of Christ. You will live out your life learning more and more about Jesus. When you go to your grave, you will confess that there is more after a lifetime of learning that you don't know than you do. Because as you begin to pursue Christ and study His Word, you wade out into what is a bottomless ocean of information and grace and love. Jesus says, search the Scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life there. They which testify of me. In every chapter, in every book, the center, the focal point is Christ. We spend our lives learning Christ. And He's so infinite in His beauty and His wisdom and His grace and His glory that we never exhaust the material. You read the words of the martyrs, I believe it was Polycarp, who said, Eighty and six years have I served Him as He was being burned at the stake for His faith. He says, Shall I forsake Him now? After He's been with me for nearly nine decades... Now, the more you serve Him and seek Him, the more you realize that there is more to learn, more to do, more to experience. You never graduate. Acts 2 follows this pattern of teaching, baptizing, and teaching. You have a group of people there who hear a message about Christ and they're pricked in their heart. The message touches them in a way that It doesn't touch other people. I love to think about 
Ezekiel 11, 19 and the fact that God takes away the hard and stony heart and he gives a heart of flesh, these men, their heart is pricked. You can't prick a stone, but you can prick flesh. The heart of stone is taken away. The heart of flesh is there. They say, what shall we do, men and brethren? And Peter says to repent and be baptized. We are discipled. We are baptized. And then we continue to follow him each and every day of our lives. That's what we're commanded to do. I often think about the wedding vows when someone makes a commitment to Christ in their life. And I want to be very clear as we baptize people this afternoon, this is a commitment. They're committing themselves to Christ as you have committed yourself to Christ. Now we understand that salvation is by grace. But we also understand that it takes diligence to every day wake up and commit yourself to Him in that day, in that moment. As we read in the Old Testament, choose this, the, this day whom you will serve. In Hebrews, over and over, to the holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, you have these admonitions. Today, while it is today, harden not your heart. Today believe, today seek, today repent, today follow Him. As we think about the commitment that's involved in following Christ, I often think about the wedding vows. I've brought a copy of those with me today to read them to you, but I want you to think about this. When someone is married before us, when there's a wedding, I always ask some variation of this. If I'm speaking to the husband, I'll say, do you take, and I'll read the woman's name, to be your lawful and wedded wife before God and these witnesses. Listen to this. You must promise to love her, to honor and cherish her, and leaving all others to cleave only to her as a loving and faithful husband for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, so long as you both shall live, do you so promise? And if they said no... Get out of here, man. You better say yes. I won't have to kill you. That woman will. Watch out. To love, to cherish, to leave, to cleave. In love and faithfulness. Better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, so long as you live. The same exact commitment is one that we make to Christ when we join His church. And why would we use language involving a marriage to depict our service of Christ? The church of the Lord Jesus is referred to in the Holy Bible as what? The bride of Christ. Paul would say in Ephesians 5, I show you a mystery. One of these great mysteries of the word is that marriage depicts the relationship between Jesus and his people. We are to commit ourselves to him the way a wife commits herself to her husband. As we come to the final point for today, following Christ invites certain affliction. It's often caricatured in American Christianity because the popular... Americanized version 
of the gospel in today's time teaches that if you would but only follow Christ, then everything in your life would be roses. Everything will be a cakewalk. Everything will be easy. Oh, you won't get sick. Now, if you get sick, you didn't have enough faith. Let me just tell you, that is a heresy. Some of the most deeply spiritual people that I've ever known in my entire life have suffered at times with affliction and sickness. To follow Christ involves, invites affliction. How do you know that? Look at John 15. This is the upper room discourse, Jesus' final sermon to the disciples before praying. This is after communion. It's after the washing of the saints' feet. Before he goes into the garden, in the garden they come to arrest him. If you were of this world, Jesus says, the world would love his own. If you wonder why wicked men accumulate so much power and wealth and become celebrities and rock stars and political leaders, that's why. The world loves his own. No surprise. Psalm 73. But you're not of this world. Why are you not of this world? I have chosen you out of this world. Therefore, the world hateth you. You cannot talk about discipleship with, without talking about Christ choosing people. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. He goes on to say in this sermon that there are people in that day, rulers of synagogues, that would be so offended that they would put the disciples of Christ out of the synagogues and they would think that they were doing God's service by killing Christians. Chapter 16, verse 2. Jesus says in verse 3, All these things, these things will they have done unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me, and yet they think they're doing God's service. Over and over in this sermon, Jesus uses words like, Remember, remember the word that I said, The servant's not greater than his Lord. If they persecute me, they persecute you. Verse 4 of chapter 16, Remember that I told you of them. Remember. The world will hate you because you love Jesus, because the world hates Jesus. To the youngsters that are going to be baptized today, I don't say that to scare you, but I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't tell you. When you follow Christ, you tell the world, you tell Satan, you tell God's enemies, and you tell those that love the Lord. That from this moment on, I will rise from that watery grave of baptism and I will serve the Lord Jesus. I won't be like my peers. You young folks that follow Christ, let me address you. There will be times in high school and college that your friends will want you to do things that you shouldn't do. And I want you to remember this moment. You tell them, I don't do that because I serve Christ. Peer pressure is a terrible thing. They'll look at you and they'll laugh. They'll scoff. They'll say, he's one of those weird religious people. He's a fanatic. 
Now, these same people that call you a fanatic for following Christ go to a coliseum and scream till they're hoarse about a man running around tackling other men over a dead pig, a football. Oh, that's just being a fan. Well, fan's the root of fanatic. Call me a fanatic. You know, the world loves lukewarm Christians because they're no threat. But you take a man that lives for Christ or a woman that lives for Christ and they turn the world upside down. You young folks, understand, you're telling the world and the enemies of Christ today that you want to seek and serve Him. And that opens up so many things in your life. You become a target of the enemy. And so I warn you, but at the same time, it opens up so much grace, so much strength, so much assurance and peace, so much mercy, so much leadership, because you've committed yourself to Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Brothers are made for adversity, the Proverbs say. I can tell you that in my life, if there's a problem, Josh and I circle the wagons. Brothers are made for adversity. But there's a friend that sticks closer than even a brother. It's Christ Jesus. He will lead you. He will guide you. Now let's go back to the text that we began with. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You might be afraid to know that following Christ faithfully invites tribulation or persecution or affliction. But do you remember the passage that we read as we began our service today? Paul recounts his suffering in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 12, he talks about things that he'll glory in. Visions of things in glory in heaven. But he speaks about being buffeted, lest he be exalted out of measure, above measure. A messenger of Satan had come to him to buffet him. What does that mean? So many different opinions of that. Paul is believed to have suffered with blindness in his later years. That's why the I believe it was the Galatians would have given him his very own eyes, their very own eyes. He refers to the fact that he wrote such a large epistle with his own hand. He writes big, he can't see. Some people believe it's health infirmities. Some people believe it's guilt over the things that he did in his past before Christ called him on the road to Damascus. The guilt of all the Christians that he martyred. Whatever it was, it was a messenger from Satan. And it did afflict him. None of us like affliction. Again, we began last week with the silly remark about the cabinet in my kitchen that has every conceivable type of pain medicine. If I have a headache, I take ibuprofen. If my joints hurt, I take ibuprofen. And that's just one type of medicine. We've got medicine for sinuses and medicine for stomach problems and medicine for all sorts of things. None of us like suffering. 
But I want you to realize that in suffering, we experience the presence of Christ so much more intensely that Paul says, I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When Paul beseeches God three times that he would take away this thorn in the flesh, he said unto him, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. When you're weak, that is when God's strength is given to you. Because you have no strength of your own. Do we enjoy experiencing the power of God in our lives? Paul says, I will glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I can tell you some of the best messages I've ever heard have been from men who could barely stand. Men who were sick. Men who were afflicted. A few years ago, one of you had a very painful back surgery and recounted as we would come to visit how deeply God had blessed despite the pain that you had experienced, how much closer you felt to Him through that And during that, why do we experience that phenomenon? Because when we are weak, the power of Christ rests upon us so that in our weakness we are strong in Him. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Returning to this theme of suffering, in Christian suffering we learn We experience God's grace more intensely. And number two, we say in closing, when we suffer in this world, it reminds us that this place is not our home. We act like it is. How do I know that we act like it is? Because we're so obsessed with things in it. You see, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Where the treasure is, there will the heart be also. Whatever you make your treasure is what your heart sets on. Whatever your heart sets on comes out of your mouth. It's very apparent that in this world we are far more concerned with things of this world than we are with Christ so much of the time. With our politics, I don't have any books of first politics, second politics in my Bible. With sports, with entertainment, with money, with looks and appearance, with lust, we make an idol out of anything. Suffering as a follower of Christ teaches us to look for the world beyond this world. Everything in this world will be destroyed by fire at Christ's second coming. Everything. And we're reminded that this world is simply not our home. We're not meant to live here forever. Praise God for that. In Romans 8, Paul says, I reckon, I count it up, I tabulate, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth on the manifestation of the sons of God. 
For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We're talking about the resurrection here. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of the body. Afflictions in this world that we all experience for a variety of reasons calls us to groan and to wait for the adoption to wit, the redemption of the body. What gets you through those moments of affliction? We are saved by hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. What does a man yet hope for when he's seen it? Paraphrasing. We hope for that which we see not, and with patience wait for it. And that hope, it does save us from despair, from the grief, and even at times from some of the pain. As followers of Christ in this world, we undoubtedly will experience things that are unpleasant. But in those moments, as committed followers, discipled and baptized, desiring above all to be faithful till death do you part, the strength of Christ is made perfect in your weakness. And you more greatly yearn for his second coming in the affliction. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us a hope. Lord, we don't understand a lot of things about this world. What we do understand is that our devotion is to be to you. Help us to love one another the way that we should. Help us to love one another the way your son loves us. Help us to forgive one another to endure the afflictions of this world. Help us to be faithful disciples. Help us to rejoice this afternoon in a beautiful, beautiful baptismal service. Be with these little ones who have professed their faith in you and thank God, oh Lord, thank you so much for calling them unto yourself, revealing your Son to them. We know, Father, through the Scriptures that, as it's so often said, that you don't have grandchildren, you only have children. And so, Lord, to see our little ones know you and follow you, it's the greatest joy and the greatest treasure that a man could ever have. Dismiss us now. Be with us in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name.